You're listening to All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. Um, we've been talking about the um, fifteenth Mew AV investigation and incident since it happened, and uh, sadly, the anniversary, uh, the first anniversary, happens this week. And um, I got an email from retired Marine Colonel Walt Yates talking about. Um, some developments relative to the Marine Corps response to all of this. And so wanted to have uh, Walt Yates on and talk about those. So joining me uh, very graciously again is uh, Colonel Walt Yates, United States Marine Corps retired. Walt, first of all, thanks for doing this. Glad to. Thanks for having me on. Right. Um, for those who haven't listened to our previous interviews, you first of all, you should all you got to do in the the, uh, the search box is type in Yates, Y-A-T-E-S, and you'll see the interviews we've done. And um, and so, Walt, let's just give a thumbnail of your career um, uh, with a particular emphasis on uh, this, the, the skills that got you into a world where you kind of saw these investigations – move through the the institution of the Marine Corps and how they got dealt with. So give us the thumbnail of your career. Sure. I uh, was commissioned in 1990 and started off as a uh, field artilleryman, did that for about 12 years, and then uh, got separated from the field artillery community and found myself with a degree from Naval Postgraduate School in modeling and simulation. And that became kind of where I spent the the second half of my career was in training systems, human performance, and then in the acquisition uh, and program management side of training systems. And so I spent, uh, I was a modeling and simulation officer at 29 Palms from 04 to 07, then did a tour at uh, PM Training Systems in Orlando, went up to Marine Corps Systems Command uh, after becoming a, a MOS change to a primary MOS of acquisition, then to uh, back as the program manager in Orlando for the last four years on active duty from 2014 to 2018. All right. Talk to to us about how you acquire the ability to look at these kind of investigations with a critical eye to see if uh, what we're – what we the rhetoric on the front end matches the reality of what happens on the back end. Talk to us about about your experiences uh, uh, later in your career watching this. Okay, well, um, investigations and and the the consequences of of corrective action to the findings of investigation all fit into the larger context of the, the Marine Corps programs. Um, not just acquisition programs, but training programs and, and oper- routine operations. And when when there's a, a Class A mishap, um, 
involving the loss of a million dollars or more in government property or the loss of life, there's uh, the report of that investigation, the findings are staffed and get endorsements up to the three-star level, usually several three-stars, and then it's staffed out to the cognizant organizations to address the, the findings. Some of those if it's a, a failure, mechanical failure, it may go back to the acquisition program manager for a weapon system. If it's a training uh, deficiency or incorrect procedures, training and education command um, and or nav air, if it's an aviation training system, would be called in to take, uh, conduct an analysis and take appropriate action to correct that. Now, um, we use the the acronym DOTMLPF um, as our part of the JSIDS concept of how do you get a capability? And it's usually a combination of factors. It's doctrine, organization, training, leadership, material solutions, uh, leadership, personnel, and facilities. And sometimes they add other letters off to the end of that to distinguish policy from doctrine and, and so forth. But the, the solution is seldom do one thing. It's usually a combination of several things. But the, the M uh, of material solutions, that is acquisition, procuring things, uh, updating things, is usually one of the most costly. Um, words are cheap, uh, which is why you can change things in doctrine or policy, but if you don't back it up with the budgetary resources or the manpower, it often doesn't get done, and that's um, okay. That's so, so that takes us okay. So, so if you could, and I'm going to ask you to kind of give us a thirty thousand foot view of this. If you could talk to us about the different boxes that make up um, what is required to address these problems, um, and and. Um, and it might be an aviation incident like the F-18 KC-130J incident uh, off the coast of uh, Japan. Or it might be uh, a ground incident like the 15th Muse incident. Um, so what are, the, what are the boxes that have to be looked at um, from the 30,000-foot view? So I think at, at the high level, one of the first things they look at whenever it's a, a wreck, a crash, or uh, a weapons failure of some sort is, did, did the equipment or software perform as it was intended to? Is, is it performing to within specifications? And so that, that would direct action to the, uh, the acquisition program manager. When it comes to the human factors and um, you look at the training and then the, the, the qualifications of the, the individuals and whether the chain of command was appropriately supervising that and ensuring that trained and qualified personnel were performing those tasks. And very often, um, it, it, almost in every Class A mishap, there's a component of changing training procedures or the methods by which um, we provide that training. And that's where I was personally involved in reviewing and discussing courses of action to address training deficiencies um, to prevent future mishaps. Okay, so there's an 
There's a materials slash acquisition piece that has to be looked at where did things function correctly. There's a training and supervision piece that from this 30,000 view that we would look at and see, okay, there's that box, there's that box, there's that box. And so, and then for the, for the remedy to actually take place, there's also what a funding box that has to be, that has to be right. That has to be functional so that whatever recommendations get made by acquisitions or get made by training, uh, education, supervision people, uh, that those things actually actually become reality? Yes. Um, So in most cases, not talking specifically about training, but um, weapon systems, C2, uh, vehicles, aircraft, et cetera, we use the, the construct of having a resource sponsor and a requirement sponsor that publishes the the capability definition, and then advocates for the the budgetary resources to make it happen. Um, For most things uh, in the Marine Corps, most acquisition programs, those are the integration divisions over at uh, CDD, uh, capability, uh, CDD, uh, capability development division at at, uh, under CD&I. For training, especially now that it is a three-star command that falls under training and education command for training capability to be the requirement sponsor for TNR standards and the resource sponsor for the training systems and training programs, uh, the budgetary support needed to make those happen. Okay. So, so that makes sense to me. So you can't have a, a real world solution Right. Unless you do look at material, unless you do look at training and then and then also actually give that solution life by saying we're going to fund it. And and one of the things that I, you know, the in our earlier conversations, the bee in your bonnet was that, you know, we go through these things, we identify these training shortfalls we say that we want to do them and then they go unfunded. Um, and so you've checked the block on papering all of this. You've identified training shortfalls. You know, let's just assume for the sake of discussion that the issue is in training and that there's no real acquisition issue here. Um, and so different recommendations get made. And then at the end of the day, they, um, the document gets signed, and then a very, very small percentage gets funded, which means the whole thing is largely for naught. Yeah, is am I am I off base by saying that? Right. Um, you you have to provide the resources to make training policies or or procedural um, activities happen. Um, they, they require resources. So things like, um, in the, um, in the recent AAV mishap, one, one of the primary findings was that the passengers were not appropriately trained before boarding that AAV. And as you pull the thread on that, it wasn't just this mishap, but one that happened three years earlier, 
where you find that the lack of training for passengers in amphibious vehicles and rotary wing aircraft over water has been an identified deficiency. And yet, over those budget years... And, and, when, and when, you, when you say identified, you mean in Class A mishaps, yes? Yes, yes. So, that, so this, is, it, it, this is a repeated finding of Class A mishaps, and then you get people like me who say, how in the hell can this happen again? And Walt explains that. Well, the answer is if you, if you want to, you know, following the, the, the famous quote from all the president's men, and the, the, the inside source Deep Throat said, follow the money. If you follow the money to the budget request for, that the Marine Corps submits for um, all of the, as we call it, colors of money, the research and development, the procurement, and the operations and maintenance, you say, all right, if we're going to revamp and, and recapitalize our training capability, we need new training systems or simulators. Is there a procurement um, budget or is there R&D budget being requested to do that? Or in this case, where it wasn't necessarily research and development or, or buying new simulators, but we just need to widen the aperture so that more people can get through the simulators that we do have. Where's the O&M money? Well, after the 2017 mishap, you found zero change in in the budgets that were requested for underwater egress training. Didn't move at all, and nor did the um, nor did the Marine Corps orders and training and readiness manuals that pertain to that training. They did not get updated um, to to address the findings of the the mishap. Three years later. We have a, a another mishap in which nine lives are lost that garnered a lot more attention because of the the many negligent factors that, that caused the, the AAV to sink. Um, then, okay, the, the AAV sank. Why were the occupants not able to safely egress, especially given the, the length of time? And the answer was they weren't trained. They hadn't been sent to training. The two that were, you know, notionally cited as having been trained only had a subset of what the underwater egress training program is supposed to include. So you need to look at the budget documents. And I, I, I will tell you, I've looked at the fiscal year 22 presidential budget request from the Marine Corps for operations and maintenance, and there is a request for about $900,000, if I recall correctly, of additional operations and maintenance money to operate the four underwater egress trainers that the Marine Corps has. So that's Camp Lejeune, Camp Pendleton, uh, Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii, and Camp Hanson, Okinawa. And that's good. That That is uh, seems about appropriate to me in being able to run a second shift or to run it on weekends and to make sure that those systems are maintained and operational so that more Marines could get through them without having the circumstances described in the investigation where it was down for COVID and we couldn't get additional time to, to get our Marines through the training. Um, it, so that's good. But the there are other elements that are obviously missing from the funding. And uh, when we get to the, the recently updated Assault Amphibian training and readiness manual that was published in uh, July 7th of this month, 
I can uh, talk more specifically about those. Okay. So I hope everybody can see kind of the way this thing um, goes down this path to to some resolution, right? Some evolution of policy, some evolution in training. I, I believe it's called institutionally learning from your mistakes. Um, I want to talk to you about ground versus uh, ground versus training TNRs. First of all, can you explain to everybody what a TNR is? Sure. T- TNR is the common term for a training and readiness standard or a training and readiness event that is a recipe for these are the steps that you perform um, under broken down into a task description, the conditions, the performance standards, and then it, it lists reference documents and procedural references for how you do it. It also lists support requirements, and those support requirements would be things like what type of range do you need to train this event? How much ammunition and, and you know, what dotics is, as we say, for uh, ball ammunition, tracers, um, doesn't go down to tell you how much fuel, but it would tell you things like what type of vehicles you need to, to perform a task. So it's, it's a cookbook of these are, the, these are the steps we go through to develop the skills that we need to perform the mission. And the Marine Corps on the ground side used to have what we called ITSs or individual training standards. In the early 2000s, the ground side of the Marine Corps adopted the methodology developed at NAVAIR for Navy and Marine Corps Aviation, which is the, the TNR methodology. And they, there was a, a Marine Corps order has uh, published 16 years ago, has never been updated on the training and readiness program. It's the Marine Corps order 3500.72A. And it lays out the TNR methodology for the ground side of the Marine Corps. But it is not, in my opinion, a full implementation of what the aviation community does. And I say it's not a full implementation because if you look at an aviation training and readiness manual standard, it tells you the performance, the the proficiency evaluation criteria, which some ground TNR standards do, others don't. It's it's more subjective. But it tells you the performance standard. It tells you the conditions. It tells you the type of simulators or the number of flight hours of live flying that you need to perform that. And then it goes down even to the level of how many hours of contractor support do you need to operate these training simulations? So that that all goes into a spreadsheet and a, a, a big planning process annually that produces the aviation campaign plan. And the aviation campaign plan, otherwise known as the AV plan, is a resource-loaded strategy for developing these skills in the aviation component. And so it gives the deputy commandant for aviation very strong traceability from mission essential tasks necessary to support O plans, all the way back to individual squadrons and what their training schedule looks like and, and training events. So if if there's a budget cut proposed, DC Aviation can say exactly what the readiness impact is of that budget cut on TNR standards because it's so rigidly traceable. On the ground side, we lack that traceability. Our TNR standards are very vague in many cases and don't list the 
type of training systems, the number of training systems, certainly not the contractor support and, and what it takes to, to conduct that training. And so the, the budget request to support ground training is much squishier than for aviation training. Um, it, 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 you know, a budget cut, we can't actually tell you how much readiness is going to go down because unfortunately on the ground side of the Marine Corps, we measure training more by the resources it consumes rather than the skills it produces. It's, we, we measure the inputs instead of the skill outputs. And that's a problem. Um, the aviation community pilots have uh, a readiness individual training record in a database called M-sharp. Can't remember exactly what that stands for. On the ground side, the Marine Corps Training Information Management System, uh, MCTIMS, much, most of the training that Marines undergo will never be entered into MCTIMS. So if you want to ask if a, a Marine is trained, you have to go to the unit training chief and check and see if there's a record of a certain training event um, being performed and the performance standards if it was recorded. And that's that lack of traceability and anchoring it to skill and performance metrics rather than resources that go into it, that's the problem. And it results in a lot of training and readiness events on the ground side not being properly resourced. Okay. So I, and so what people need to understand is is because of the dollars involved in aviation, the propensity to have Class A mishaps, there is a very rigid system. And what you described it is, if you tug on one end, you can kind of, you can see it move on the other end. Is that how? Yeah. Right. Yes, that's an analogy I would use. Yeah, and and as opposed to on the ground side, you can pull on one end, but you're not going to see you're not going to see it, you know, move on the other end um, because it's not wired in the same fashion. And and so, exactly. go ahead. Yeah, exactly. And and the training and readiness manuals. On the ground side, we'll say, you know, initially trained in simulation, but the final training is is live. Okay, um, can you, you know, is there anything to tell us how much simulation training is is needed? And you'll get these these oddball metrics like you need four hours. Well, here's here's an example: deployable virtual training environment (DVTE) laptop computer-based training simulations for tactical decision-making. If you look at the infantry TNR manual, every second lieutenant through lieutenant colonel in the 03 MOSs would spend 28 hours annually using DVTE, presumably at the Battle Sim Center on base. I don't think you'd find any of them that would claim that they've spent 24 hours a year, 28 hours a year at the Battle Sim Center using DVTE. And that's just the officers. Um, so, how much and what do you how do you measure skill is it like a cake that you put in the oven and bake it for so many hours they're not tied to you know shall uh shall meet these performance standards um before you proceed to live right and that's a, a key difference you think about aviation simulators if you if a pilot doesn't pass his simulation qualifications he doesn't go to the flight line they don't you don't wave that and say, well, hopefully you'll do better in the air. That's a hard, that's a gate that you have to pass through. And on the ground side, it's like, if you feel like doing it in simulation, maybe you can, but everybody would rather just go live and, and 
learn in a live environment. And sometimes that's not not the best way to learn a skill. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the findings of fact in the F-18 KC-130J mishap, wasn't one of the findings that they did skip over uh, qualls that 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 one of the F-18s that was attempting to do a night refuel hadn't done a day refuel yet, something like that? That sounds vaguely familiar, and I'm, I'm not— Okay. I'm not as well versed in that. Uh, I'm not as well versed in that investigation. I, I have read over it, but it was also a very long, exhaustive in, initial investigation. Was mostly set aside with a a I forget what they call it something uh, adjudication board or cent- central disposition authority CDA central disposition authority review. Um, that while it didn't, as far as I could tell, rebut any of the findings of fact in the investigation, drew different conclusions about responsibility from it. And, and I'm not, I'm not confident in talking about uh, no. that investigation, but right. because it, it's outside of my uh, specific area of experience. Got it. Got it. I, I. But there were there were I, elements of of the the amount of time that had passed since a pilot had been trained with the night vision equipment and whether he was trained on the same night vision equipment that he actually flew with in that instance. Right. And, uh, the, the daytime training for refueling and so forth. And one, I remember one of the comments I read, um, I can't remember where I read it was, yeah, that's not the way we do this. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and which would lend itself to your, the more rigid approach to aviation, right? The the greater propensity to have class A mishaps, the higher dollar numbers involved. You can see uh, ground side, um, many, many more people, a lot more people undergoing this training or this, you know, um, not as rigid, um, uh, don't have the same, for the most part, don't have the same propensity of class a mishaps although they happen we all know that and so there's there's again there's different um there's and again because walt and i before we were talking uh before we came on the air we were talking and i said you know look if you're going to fight tonight you have to train hard if you're going to train hard and 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 you want to be um faithful to the oath you took and that oath not so much to congress but to the people who give you their sons and daughters to train and and that's who your moral responsibility is too that that nobody goes home in a casket you know while we're training and if you're going to if you're going to prepare to fight tonight and if you're going to make sure they're trained you have an absolute ironclad moral responsibility to conduct that training in a safe manner. And if you can't do it safely, then you don't do it. And so um, my concern throughout all of this, when I hear some of the things that the the assistant commandant said, was, you know, we have to create a culture that people feel comfortable, right, saying that this is unsafe. And to me, when I hear that, I think, are you kidding me? Is that where we're at uh, as, as an 
operational culture of leaders that we have leaders that know something's unsafe, but they won't say it because they're afraid. And, well, I, and, I, and, and that is, that is to me incredibly disturbing because I know as an instructor for two years at the infantry officer course, which the Marine Corps takes great pride in, just so everybody knows. We take great pride in the fact that we produce the best infantry lieutenants in the world. And I think everybody who has ever taught there would tell you that. Yes, we do that. And, you know, and I think those of us who taught at the basic school were equally as proud of one of the most unique schools in the American military, the place where every officer goes to, the place that we make them, everybody, a basic officer, Right, And so we take tremendous pride in all that, and critical to doing that is to be able to do it safely. And, and for, the, for the life of me, I cannot imagine executing the duties of a leader in the Marine Corps and not having the courage to stand up and say, hey, I don't like this. This doesn't seem safe to me. And I think we should talk about this machine gun position and the way we're closing over there, right, and the visibility. And if we don't see the first signal, the, the propensity for something to go wrong here. And we don't have those kind of, So to me, um, this is an important discussion um, about these kind of things. And yeah. and so anyway. I, I, I'm also uncomfortable with the substitution of responsibility, if you will, being placed on having a safety culture rather than having the leader responsible for making those decisions. It's why you have leaders that have experience and training in their job because, as in the AAV mishap, the Marines in the back of that AAV did not know that when the water rose to deck plate level, that was the signal to prepare to evacuate, that they should have been shedding their gear 20 minutes before it actually went under. And so how it wasn't a matter of them not feeling comfortable saying this is unsafe. It's they didn't know what they didn't know. And that's why leadership is, is so important. They were not given the experience. I think if they had heard that safety brief even one time at the submersible vehicle egress trainer, that when the water rises to deck plate level, that's a signal to be prepared to disembark. And when it gets over your bootlaces or ankle deep, that's the, that's the signal and the criteria for evacuating the vehicle. Um, but that's just a, a specific example here. I, I think right. the safety culture is, um, is not the right target here. It's the leadership culture. And they've done a, the, the, the operating forces have been investigated and held accountable. What has not been investigated at all, at least not in any publicly disclosed document, are the decisions in resourcing training that, that led to that accident. It okay. was a deficiency of training availability and deficiency, deficiency in training policy that would have said, you shall not place a Marine or sailor aboard an amphibious vehicle that has not completed successfully underwater egress training. Got and it. that statement still does not exist for the passengers. It does now exist as of July 7th in the, in the AAV community for their crews. For the crew. For the crew. For the crew. Okay. 
Um, we talked about the rigid nature of aviation TNRs. We talked about the not so rigid nature of of ground TNRs. Um, let's talk about this TNR manual review that just got released on July seventh. What are your thoughts relative to that? Okay, so the the scope of this uh, training and readiness manual is the assault amphibian community. So that's all of the the crew for the AAVs, their their leadership, and it applies for the first time. This is the first assault amphibian TNR manual that applies to both the AAVs, the old legacy platform, and the new ACV. That's a, an important uh, distinction. So they can't solve. This doesn't have scope to require training and, and prescribed processes for the passengers and for everything else that was identified in there. But with respect to the responsibilities and the training of the crew, this is the document. And so uh, would you like me to go over this, some top-level yeah. changes? Okay. Yeah. Give so, us give us the things that, that you think are, you know, right. are, are the most relevant. So I, I downloaded this document yesterday, just noticed that it had been published earlier this month, and compared it to the, to the version that it replaced. The, the new version is the NAVMAC 3500.2 Delta, and it replaced the 3500.2 Charlie. The 2 Delta is 478 pages as opposed to 308 pages, and there's a couple of reasons that it's significantly longer. Um, probably the the, the primary reason is that the title changed from the AAV TNR manual to the Assault Amphibian TNR manual because it applies to the legacy system and to the uh, the new system. The previous version published in 2017 had no mention of the ACV. Um, and it also um, it pushes down some tasks that were done at the platoon level or higher down to the crew and section level, which is important. So previously, the the direction to ensure personnel or water survival and submerged vehicle egress trained uh, and qualified before going in the water was a platoon level task that was done once every 12 months. It's now a section crew level task. So every vehicle commander and crew has to verify this um, Periodically. Now, that's that is for the crew, not specifically, uh, it not pertaining to the passengers' um, training. But they can, if they get infantry passengers or other passengers on an AAV that are not uh, water survival and submersible vehicle egress trained, they can say you're not qualified to ride on there. That's what they're supposed to do now. Um, it adds specific. This is critically important in 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 light of the findings of the investigation. It adds tasks and language for training on emergency breathing devices, supplemental emergency breathing devices that had been removed from AAVs back in 2015 as for cost-cutting measures. Those are now back in the TNR manual as a requirement, and that's a good thing because it, as, as we saw in going through the findings of fact, the lack of emergency breathing devices could have been a, a, a very important factor. It adds a requirement for conduct waterborne evacuation of personnel as a task to be performed at the crew team level. Um, it was previously only at the platoon level and to do that every six months 
as a sustainment training. So this is to train the crew how to tell their passengers to evacuate the vehicle in an orderly manner. There's also the, the lack of safety boats that was found as a, a, a very important factor in the 15th Mew mishap um, is addressed in here. There are 64 instances in the new TNR manual where this phrase appears. AAVs and ACVs require safety boats when operating in the water. Believe it or not, in the previous edition of the TNR manual, there was only one mention of safety boats, and it was in the conduct of surf survival. Um, so it was having safety boats present when the crew are 500 yards out uh, from the beach um, practicing using their flotation devices. So th that's a, a significant change. It also includes 28 mentions of the submersible vehicle egress trainer, as opposed to only 12 in the previous edition. And that's because it, it adds mention of the SVET in every waterborne training event so that they, you know, that's a foot stomper. You shouldn't be out here training in the water if everybody involved has not successfully completed and is current in their SVET qualifications. So that's a, that's a top level overview of the positive changes. And, and I, I think that um, I don't have any recommendations on those, uh, on improving those, that those are the, the type of things that I would have hoped to see in here. Okay. Let me ask you a question. One of the um, things we talked about uh, when you were on was the substitution of the sweat chair for the, um, you know, the egress trainer. Right. Um, can you, did that change at all? Um, it, it, it did. It clarifies that the, the SVET, the submersible vehicle egress trainer, which is a simulated um, passenger compartment of an AAV and could be adapted to uh, simulate an AC, ACV passenger compartment if, if you switch out the type of seats, that that is the, the criteria for being fully trained for underwater egress training. It's not the individual dunker chair, but it's the ability to get out of the passenger compartment with other people in there in an orderly fashion um, that is the training standard. So I think that's very, very important. There's no ambiguity in this TNR manual about that. Got it. And, um, okay, let's talk about, um, let's talk about the funding of this. Okay. So, oh. so you sound like you're the things that you would, you expected to see in this version of, of the TNR. Yes. Um, now, there's also a question of um, there's other TNRs, for instance, the Marine Corps Common Skills right. TNR. Um, so as this thing migrates, right, um, as it reverberates through Marine Corps training uh, doctrine, mm -hmm. um, the Marine Corps Common Skills TNR, does that need to be updated? Well, this is just personal opinion, but absolutely, yes, it does. So the, the Marine Corps Ground TNR program, the Marine Corps Order P3500.72A, the 16-year-old document that I mentioned earlier, prescribes that TNR manuals are to be reviewed and updated every two years. The NAVMAC 
3500.18 Delta, which is the Marine Corps Common Skills Volume 1 Training and Readiness Manual, was last updated on December 3rd, 2018. So it's two and a half years old already and, and no update has been published. The Common Skills Manual lists TNR events that every Marine, regardless of MOS, ground, air, command element, combat element, logistics element, every Marine is supposed to complete. And that's where you would expect to find the requirement for, for Marines that are passengers on an AAV or a helicopter to undergo underwater egress training. You could argue that, okay, not every Marine in the Marine Corps should have to do that, but those in the, the operating forces that, that are assigned to a MU, okay, fine. Then the Marine Corps Order 3502.3, Charlie, I think it is, the MU Pre-Deployment Training Program, that's where you would uh, expect to find it. But neither the MU Pre-Deployment Training Program nor the Marine Corps Common Skills Training and Readiness Manual have been uh, updated subsequent to the, the 15th MU uh, AAV mishap investigation. And I would hope that they are being updated, but it's been three months and uh, we've seen the AAV, uh, the Assault Amphibian TNR manual updated, but those other two that would apply to everyone else, we haven't seen those standards change, nor have we seen the MARADMIN 293-18 that was published in May of 2018 after the MV-22 crash um, from 31st Mew that resulted in three Marines drowning when the Osprey sank off the coast of Australia. That MARADMIN, which was titled the Establishment of an Interim Service Level Policy on Underwater Egress Training, has not been rescinded. And that's a horrible piece of policy uh, I'll state that without any reservations. It does not actually tell you anything different from what existed before the MARADWIN was published as far as who has to undergo training. It just says follow the published policies. And it punts responsibility down the chain of command. Instead of pushing it up to generals, um, it pushes it down to aircraft commanders and vehicle commanders for helicopters and AAVs to give a safety brief if any of their passengers have not had an opportunity to train. Well, you know, since, since when do we push this type of responsibility down the chain instead of pulling it up? And furthermore, it doesn't even tell the, um, it doesn't even tell the operating forces how you verify that passengers have or have not been trained. Um, so there's, there's some serious policy updates that need to be published um, and they haven't. Okay, so you can see the challenge of this because what really what grabs headlines, right, is the discipline that comes out of this. And you can see the unsexy side of, of, of all of this is as these um, findings from investigations meander through all these boring acronyms, Right, that Waltz is talking about TNRs, right, and and uh, you know and you know all the different manuals that we have. That's where it essentially becomes law, and and you could see that it's simply not as sexy. This thing got published 
and nobody wrote about it. No, nobody wrote about it in, in the aftermath of, 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 of uh, an incident that killed uh, eight Marines and a sailor. And so you could see, again, uh, and that's why, that's, that's why we're, we're doing this, right, to follow these investigations to hopefully what is their two outcomes that actually impact training so this doesn't happen, happen again. So no family has to go through this, that, that it was just kind of, um, you know, what many family members would call gross negligence uh, that contributed to uh, the death of their son or daughter. In this case, we're talking about nine sons. And, um, and so the, the next piece of this, Walt, is going to be um, this concept of a cut line. So could you explain to everybody what, what a cut line is? Okay. So when, when the Marine Corps puts together its budget request, when all the, the military services put together their budget requests, there are things that get funded and things that don't. And, and this, is, this is really where the senior leadership uh, comes into play. The, the operating forces commanders execute the policies and, and conduct operations and training with the resources that are provided in the budget. But it's at Quantico and the Pentagon where these budgets are prepared and submitted. And with respect to training, it's Training and Education Command and what they call the Training PEB, Program Evaluation Board, that prepares the, the budget for training systems on, on the ground side. On the aviation side, it's Marine Corps uh, Deputy Commandant for Aviation and, and Marines uh, at Pax River, the Aviation Hallway at, at the Pentagon and MOTS 1 and so forth. But TCOM puts together the ground, uh, the, the green dollar ground training budget submission. And not everything gets funded, um, but at least everything that is a requirement should be identified and should be listed as an unfunded requirement. And the cut line is the dividing point between those things which are funded and those things which are unfunded. And unfortunately, many of the, this is my perception, many of the safety and force preservation related training uh, systems, programs, get fall below the cut line perennially. Um, it's not that we'll fund it this year and we'll fund something else next year. You see things go for years without um, the budget resources they need to to operate, be maintained, or, or updated and improved. That sounds very sad uh, to say. I, I, but I want to talk about about the requirement. So, I mean, if you look at this as a as an annual event that we are going to have things happen um, this year in the Navy, Marine Corps, the Air Force, and those things are going to require unanticipated dollars. There are going to be modifications to things we do. There are going to be things that we're going to have to do based on incidents, um, mishaps, and then the financial implications of that. How do we account for that, Walt, in the budget every year so that every one of these isn't a leap X and a special request for funding? 
Right. Well, uh, do we? So do we have well, do we have such a fund? Yeah. This this is where I'm going to have to give you my perception, and this is not definitive. But the one thing I'll tell you is that at, as an acquisition program manager, you don't get any budget as a management reserve. You don't get a a um, Congress doesn't give you money. Deputy Commandant for Programs and Resources will not request money for you to react to things. Your your job is to plan and anticipate and to to have have a budget that you execute in totality every year. You know, one of the the most unforgivable sins is having anything left in your budget on the last day of the fiscal year or when the the funds expire. So there's no management reserve there. Now, there at the Deputy Commandant for Programs and Resources, if there is any flexibility, that's that's what the Deputy Commandant's job is, is to move money around between the comptrollers and the Marine Corps and to adapt in a budget year to changes. Because the budget is a law signed, you know, passed by Congress and signed into to law by the president. Right. Um, and you don't get, you know, unless there's a supplemental funding resolution to Congress, which there won't be for an aviation mishap or a ground mishap or anything else, you're reacting with the budgetary authority that you have in that that budget year law. So it's moving money around, taking from one program and moving it to another. And that's usually that's a that's a decision made at PNR or at least at the comptroller level. Um, at Systems Command, Training and Education Command. Systems Command is, is primarily acquisition programs, but Training and Education Command would, Comptroller would have uh, authority to move money around to address in-year uh, emergencies. Okay, so there, is, and, and again, the word slush fund, but to me this would be, you know, an example of an ongoing requirement, right? A requirement that hits us on an annual basis that it would be nice if we could fu- we could plan for it, but evidently, uh, the way the budget's right. done, uh, so, we don't so, we don't do this. So so well as so as we begin to look at this, um, um, these modifications to training, I guess um, you talked earlier about nine hundred thousand uh, yeah. dollars. The budget request for four. Uh, underwater egress training, um, uh, additional funding for those four sites so that, in, in your opinion, we could add another shift, um, blah, 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 blah. Now, you have no idea whether that's enough money to, to cover the costs of, of this, um, but in somebody's estimation, adding that level of funding to those sites creates the ability to, to do the throughput that is required to get Marines that are going to work in AAVs on the water, right? Trained to, to, to this new standard. Yeah. So just, uh, to clarify, I need to correct what I said. Um, I just pulled up the, uh, the budget document. This is available on the secnav.navy.mil. You know, it's, it's the OMMC book. Um, if you were searching for it, for the presidential budget for for um, fiscal year 22, which is not passed yet, we're we're now told that that probably won't be passed by Congress and signed until December timeframe, maybe. Okay. But in there, the amount is, and I'll read verbatim: 
It says training enablers, family of egress trainers, increase the increase supports addition of uh, supports the addition of underwater egress instructor training. Additional egress trainers are needed due to Marine Corps Order 3502.3C, which has been modified to increase the categories of deploying personnel that must receive underwater egress training. And the baseline was $215,000, and the amount of the increase is $915,000. So I, um, I wasn't aware, and I'll, I'll check whether there have been any changes published to the Marine Corps Order 3502.3C MU pre-deployment order. It's good if, you know, it may still be in staffing and this may be leaning forward, but that additional money is increasing the scope of who needs to be trained in the underwater egress training. That's, that's good. And $915,000 seems to me in the, in the realm of uh, a reasonable amount to, re to request for that to run extra shifts at the, at the trainers that we do have. What concerns me though about the amount is this um, addition of emergency breathing devices. So th there would presumably be a training allowance of emergency breathing devices at every, uh, all four of these underwater egress trainers along with personnel and equipment qualified to recharge them and disinfect them and go through all of that um, process so that every every unit going through there is trained. And um, this is gonna require changing the program of instruction. You're not gonna add emergency breathing device training without extending the number of hours. You're gonna take it from a half day to a full day of training, just a guess, um, to get people through that. Um, because it's not, as you may be aware, these emergency breathing devices are not something you play around with without a, a competent instructor. Because if you're sitting on the bottom of the tool of the pool, breathing off of an emergency oxygen bottle, and then you surface without exhaling, you're going to have air bubble. You're going to have your lungs um, expand as you increase. And it's not exactly the bends, but it's a um, it's an injury that happens because your your lungs end up being like a balloon that expands as you go to the surface if you forget to inhale. So that's the type of, of training that you want to give them in the classroom, reinforce with foot stompers and warn them when we go to the bottom and you start breathing off these bottles, remember to fully exhale before you start to surface. Otherwise, it will hurt maybe hours later. But that that's just an example of the type of, of uh time and money that I don't see added to the FY22 budget and that may have to be reactively pulled from something else when they get the, the new assault amphibian TNR implemented. Got it. All right. <clears throat> As we wrap this up, so mindful of watching the budget and what makes a cut line and what does not ultimately and what Congress funds and does not fund. Um, is the Marine Corps doing the things you would expect it to do as, as, um, and again, uh, understanding that, uh, Lieutenant General Monday's investigation has not been completed. The Navy investigation has not been completed. Um, uh, is Marine Corps on solid footing here? 
the I'll start by saying the the new TNR for the assault amphibian community is on track. Uh, I I would only have one recommended correction or addition, not a not a correction, but additional guidance for for what's included in there, and that goes back to the the task to ensure personnel or water survival and submerged vehicle egress trainer qualified, it doesn't tell them how to do that and it doesn't list the references that would tell them how to do that. To, to ensure means that they need to pull that information from the definitive authoritative source of data, which is the Marine Corps Training Information Management System module of the, the Total Force Administration System, our database in the cloud of training records. So when, whenever a class goes through the submersible vehicle egress trainer or the modular amphibious egress trainer for helicopters, the results of that training are supposed to be run in a diary entry or, or to be uh, entered into TFAS, the date and the qualification of every individual who went through the training. That, those database fields were added in 2018 after the Osprey mishap, but the fact that they even exist is not described in the TNR manual. It doesn't tell you check TFAS, pull a roster to see who's trained before you go in the water. Um, doesn't tell the, the, the MU pre-deployment training program, 3500 or 3502.3 Charlie order, does not tell the MU staff before you deploy or before you go on PMINT, um, pull a roster, see who's trained and who's not and mark them accordingly so that nobody is flies or swims that doesn't have the qualifications. That, that closing the, the loop and saying, this is how you verify whether somebody can or cannot be assigned to ride in an AAV in the water or to fly over water in a helicopter or Osprey, that's, that's the one thing I would add to the Assault Amphibian uh, TNR manual. Going on to the, the Marine Corps Common Skills or the, the MU Pre-Deployment Training Order, those do need to be updated immediately to, to clarify that there's no wiggle room, that you either are fully trained with a current qualification period, whether that's two years or um, they, they even had it set at four years for, for passengers, but you need to be fully trained uh, successfully before you're assigned to this type of uh, duty. The other thing that just leaves me shaking my head is Mar Admin 293-18, hanging out there, not canceled, pulled it down this morning, and it's still listed as a current policy directive. That's a horrible piece of, of, of guidance, policy, whatever you want to call it. Um, it. It bothers me that that hasn't been at least canceled, um, but that's that's still out there. And um, the, the, the modifications to the submersible vehicle egress trainer that you would expect for the ACV, it has stroking seats, not bench seats, um, other modifications. Those are not, as far as I know, budgeted. I could be, you know, I could be out of the loop on that. I, I'm only watching what appears in uh, solicitations on, for government contracts. All right. A copy of the TNR manual is, uh, is attached to this podcast. And, uh, well, first of all, uh, again, I want to thank you for making us smart on this. I know this tends not to be, you know, the sexiest discussion in terms of how investigations uh, wind their way. But when people ask the question, you know, how could this happen again? 
you know, right, this is the unglamorous world of, right, requirements, manuals, changes, and funding that is how this stuff happens or does not happen. And yeah. so, um, so well, I, you know, I just, I want to thank you for, you know, making us smart about that as somebody who, you know, did this for a living and can uh, and sh- shine some light on the process and what we ought to pay attention to, especially relative to the funding of this stuff. Because, uh, again, before we came on, you were telling me a story about, why don't you tell the story real quick about the vehicle rollover kits and the rate at which, uh, that modification was funded. So there, if, if you go back 17 years to, to our experience in Iraq institutionally, the IED was suddenly the, the unexpected biggest killer on the battlefield for, and, and wounding force against U.S. personnel. Um, the, the insurgents were attacking our convoys, our patrols, and bleeding us. And the IED was an, an asymmetric attack. They could employ it without being directly present, without us being able to directly fight back. And the reaction was first in the, in the early days, what was described as hillbilly armor, where it was mostly for snipers more than, than IEDs, but welding plates on the side of unarmored hum, Humvees and, and other vehicles to protect the drivers and, and passengers. And then very rapidly up armoring our, our vehicles, which were never designed to carry the type of weight that those chassis and, and engines and, and brakes now have to handle. Um, in, in some cases, doubling the weight of the vehicle just from the, the, the Frag 5 uh, armor package put on top of it. So one of the consequences of up-armoring vehicles, particularly Humvees, which are, are light and relatively small compared to longer wheelbases and wider wheelbases, is they flip very easily with the slightest provocation. And uh, I, I believe, if I recall correctly, an up-armored Humvee can flip on flat ground at 18 miles per hour if the driver swerves and applies the brakes in a, in a, a certain way that happens to be fairly common um, in reaction to something, an obstacle in the road or something unexpected. So it's a very dangerous vehicle to drive. And on average, just this, um, the GAO released a report uh, on training mishaps in combat and tactical vehicles that found over the last 10 to 12 years, I believe, on average, there is one death across the DOD monthly um, from vehicle mishaps, most of those being rollovers. So it's, it's not insignificant, and by sheer numbers, Humvees, even though they're a legacy system that is uh, on its way out, it's going to be around for some time to come. There will still be more Humvees in service by 2028 than there are JLTVs um, because they're they're being replaced so slowly and they're not they're not being replaced uh, as fast as anyone had anticipated. The number that I heard most recently was about 54,000 Humvees are still in service across the DOD, most of them in the Army, the Guard, and the Reserve. But those are the units that, that will typically have hold the older equipment until they're, they're mobilized. Well, th- the problem of, of rollovers due to high center of gravity and um, braking systems that aren't even anti-lock brakes, uh, I don't believe, 
the program manager said, this is a problem solicited for solutions and solutions from industry have been uh, submitted, tested, approved, but not funded for implementation at any meaningful pace. So if I, if I understand correctly, and I may be mistaken on this, the program manager for Humvees has funded 540 Humvees per year to be upgraded to an anti-rollover kit that in, that in testing appears to be very effective, but they're only funding 1% out of 54,000 of them. So that's not really addressing the problem. The, the, the last Humvee would be removed from service 12, eight to 12 years from now, and um, it still would not have the anti-rollover kit on it. That's the, the level of budgetary importance that's placed on a life-saving event. Because frankly, wrecking an old Humvee um, is not, it, it would be written off, it wouldn't be replaced. Um, but it's the, the personnel in there that need to be protected, not, not the platform. Well, and, and again, I think what that is, is, is a great example how we can see all this discussion, um, right, when the incident happens, uh, people that, that, you know, are disciplined and, and lose their jobs, you know, as a result of it. And then when we're actually going to seek a remedy, we apply the remedy at a rate which, it, you know, it, it, it's not, we certainly don't take it seriously to, to fix this, right? right. Uh, we're paying cosmetic uh, tribute to it, and but in terms of substantive things, we're not doing that. And so, and so that, that's what um, these discussions endeavor to account for, is, um, is you will see, you know, incidents where, you know, they will be investigated, people will be relieved, their recommendations get made, and then nothing happens, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or, or things get written, and they never get funded, and ultimately nothing changes, and then you find yourself looking down at another incident of the same sorts, and you wonder, how the hell did we get here? Shouldn't this have been fixed? And so that's what we're trying to uh, keep in front of everybody uh, as Walt joins us. And, uh, and so uh, we will do this again because I think this is a theme that and a target that needs to be serviced. And, uh, and what I'd really like to do, Walt, is I'd, I'd like to kind of pull apart the F-18 KC-130 incident. If I don't know if you care to you know read up about that, but I, I'd love to pull that apart as well if you have the time. The um, So let me know if, if, if you do. I, I Again, I certainly appreciate uh, your efforts and your diligence uh, in your retirement uh, to continue to uh, to take a look at this, to make us all smarter and have a, have a smart conversation so that we can make sure that ultimately at the end of all of this, that the right things do happen, right? And, and the right conversation is taking place and, and the right, um, and the, and again, the right problems are getting fixed because that's what I go back to the act max comments and general Olson's comments and, and look, um, if we don't have leaders that are going to do what they know is their job, then that's a different issue. And, and we need to make them very uncomfortable about, about doing their, about not doing their job. And, um, 
And so some of the discussion I thought was a little bit disturbing and that that is your moral responsibility when you take an oath to be a leader in the Marine Corps and you're going to be in charge of somebody else. Up until that point, it's other people's responsibility to you as somebody who gets led. But once you become a leader, you have a moral responsibility to understand the business that you're in, to know that on a daily basis people will put their life in harm's way. It's the reason we have ground guides on ramps. It's the reason we have CVC helmets. It's the reason we have radios and vehicles. And it's the reason why that shit's supposed to work or else you don't move it. And so that's how we do it. And if you're afraid, if you're a leader and you won't do those things or you won't call bullshit on people that don't do those things, there's no amount of paper that can help you. There's no amount of paper that can help you. And I think that's, uh, you know, again, I hope that's not where the Marine Corps is at, that there is enough operational discipline in the Marine Corps and people that, that will enforce standards. And when they're not there, they will put their hand up and say, hey, this is wrong. We need to talk about before we take another step. And uh, to that end, Walt, I mean, you've been absolutely fantastic in in drilling into this stuff and making the rest of us really smart about it. And so thank you very, very much for giving up your time and doing this and uh, and, and, and keeping this discussion going on. on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, well thank you for, uh, for, for making this a, a topic for the All Marines Radio audience. Is there anything, this is the general question that I, I always ask before, you know, I, I let people go, and that is, is there anything uh, in our discussion today um, that I haven't asked that you believe makes this discussion incomplete? Uh, no, I think we, we covered everything. I think it's just closing the, you know, making sure that you can follow this process and it doesn't, it's not a leaky bucket that, um has ways that things could go wrong that we that, that the institution hasn't talked about and provided appropriate cost-effective mitigation to uh, to address. Got it. All right, sir. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for doing this. And uh, until we uh, until we meet again, all the best. All right. Thanks. Same to you, Mac. All right. That is Walt Yates here on a version of All Marine Radio. Don't touch that dial. More of this program coming up next. That'll do it on a Tuesday. My thanks to Walt Yates for coming on and doing that interview. As we follow these actions that the Marine Corps will take, so that this doesn't happen again. And those actions, as you just heard, have to be uh, certainly in what's written, absolutely in what's practiced, and also what's funded. And that there is no absolution for any of it. So if you need something more definitive written, then write it. If you need leaders that aren't afraid to stand up and say, yeah, this is not safe, we're not ready, then fire the ones that can't do that. Yeah. How about an environment where you do your fucking job because people depend on you? How about that environment? Create that. And then for generals, 
How about funding the safety training necessary to facilitate we're going to fight tonight? And if you won't do that, then maybe you should back off saying that shit. If you won't fund it. So, again, my thanks to Walt Yates for coming on and doing this. On this Tuesday, I'm Mike McNamara, the Salt Marine Radio, right here on the All Warrior Radio Network. Thanks for spending some time with us. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>